Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. This week, we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite interviews with Leah Penniman, co-founder of Soulfire Farm and author of Farming While Black. Stay tuned. It's planting season here in the U.S., and some farmers who rely on foreign guest workers are struggling due to the coronavirus pandemic. Though the immigration ban announced by President Trump this week will likely not apply to H-2A visa holders, there are some other hurdles. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports from Illinois. Usually this time of year, Pete Pistorius would be hosting a crew from South Africa on his farm. Just as anything else in our lives, uh, the, you know, the pandemic has, has changed kind of the way we've dealt with our H-2A process or our labor force. Pistorius helps run a corn and soybean operation in central Illinois. And for the last few years, he's gotten help on the farm through the H-2A visa program. It allows farmers to bring over foreign nationals to fill temporary agricultural jobs. Our plan was to be able to get uh, three guys over here. And I think the, the start date we requested was like the 25th of March. March 25th came and went, and still his team from South Africa couldn't make it over because of the lockdown order there. You know, we're kind of stuck in this this limbo situation of we really don't know uh, when they'll be over um, or whether they'll even make it here for this year's planting season. That's one of the busiest times on the farm, and Pistorius really relies on those guest workers for help. Other farmers who bring in workers from countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and Nepal, all on lockdown, are facing similar situations. You know, your first reaction is, you know, what are you going to do? Then it hit him. There's an entire population of people without work due to the pandemic in his community alone. People like Derek Brown. He worked full-time at the local school district in the maintenance department, doing everything from cleaning to mowing. When his school closed, Brown says they called him in to help sanitize the place, but then that was it. He was no longer needed. We're at a standstill right now. I mean, when when you don't have any kids at school, you know, the, the kids aren't, you know, getting the school dirty. Brown used to work at Pistorius Farms and says he's happy to come back and help out. It's a busy time of year for him. And, you know, so not getting those South Africans, it, it's kind of uh, helping him out with the situation. This kind of partnership is playing out in other states, too. In Arkansas, Congressman Rick Crawford launched a program that connects farmers to those out of a job, citing the lack of H-2A workers in the state. These are people that didn't have jobs that now do. And, and these, are, these are farmers who needed people on their farms. And now they have them. Derek Brown says there's no comparison between work on the farm and his job at the school. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. I really do. Uh, farming is not easy work. That's because in addition to sheer manual labor, farming can require a lot of technical skills, like knowing how to operate a tractor or a combine. Each person Pete Pistorius had hired through the H-2A program had specific training and experience. 
Now, in addition to Derek Brown, his crew includes a laid-off commercial plumber and a few high school students. It's going to make us be better at, at training, uh, maybe be a little more patient, uh, spending time with these people um, to make sure that they can safely operate the equipment. Pistoria says training is inherent to the job, but usually he'll train someone who stays on the farm anywhere from six months to six years. The unfortunate part is that you're training uh, for a part-time job. And, you know, these people will eventually go back to their regular jobs. Once schools reopen, Derek Brown will leave the farm and go back to his regular job. And there's a chance that'll happen before it's time to harvest. We're just trying to get the crop in to start out with and, um, you know, just kind of trying to take it one battle at a time. After all, Pistoria says, he's been farming for 22 years and so far he's always managed to get the crop in and out. Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. This week, I'm gathering stories from local food businesses about how they're coping with the COVID-19 restrictions. I'll be assembling those voices for next week's episode. This week, I decided to rebroadcast a conversation with Leah Penniman at the release of her book, Farming While Black. Though this interview happened long before the coronavirus turned the food world upside down, Leah Penniman touches on some important themes that are showing up in this crisis today. I started by asking her about her land project, Soul Fire Farm. Soul Fire Farm was born in 2010. It's a project of the heart that started as a small family farm with my partner and I and our two children and has grown into a collective of about 10 of us who are predominantly folks of color, Black, Indigenous people who are committed to ending racism in the food system. So we steward 72 acres of rural mountain land in Grafton, New York, and grow food using ancestral, sustainable methods and make sure that food is available to people who need it most in the community through doorstep delivery and sliding scale pricing. And then we also are a training center for the next generation of black and brown farmers and food justice activists. So we have thousands of people who come through every year uh, to learn about farming and movement history and leadership skills and to take that knowledge you know, out into their communities to continue this broader work for food and land sovereignty. So your new book is called Farming While Black. Can you talk a little bit about the title and why you chose that title? So Farming While Black has a lot of layers of meaning. I think what's most important to me about it comes from you know my early years as a farmer. I started out when I was a teen, and I would go to these organic farming conferences all across the Northeast and all the books that were presented by vendors were written by white folks, most of them by white men. And so I really was struggling as a young, you know, brown skinned person to figure out if I had a place in the organic farming movement or if I was being a traitor to my people by choosing this way of life and this life work. And so the book was written to uplift the noble and dignified history of black agrarianism to debunk the myth that our only relationship to land has been in the context of enslavement and sharecropping and to look at the ways that black farmers have contributed so many of the important sustainable technologies that we now maybe take for granted as a historical, you know, everything from raised beds to intercropping to the CSA itself. So that was the most important thing is that, you know, we are farmers while black 
Um, and then, of course, there's also a play on words there because you talk about shopping while black or driving while black as things that are inherently dangerous in the society. And farming has been that way, too. Uh, black farmers have been dispossessed of land. You know, since 1910, we've lost almost all of our 16 million acres of land, mostly because of government discrimination in terms of USDA programs, but also because of outright white supremacist violence against black folks who were seen as seen by white folks as really not having the right to own land, but that we should be sharecroppers and tenant farmers and, and taking that second class role in society. And so it, it speaks to sort of the danger of the audacity to farm historically, but also is a, a call to reclamation of that right to land and right to belonging. I understand that your first experience with growing food, you said you were a teenager and it was a, a summer job with the Food Project in Boston. What initially drew you to growing food? What was the pull for you? I didn't grow up in a family that had a lot of money, and I was aware that I needed to start saving for college. And so I saw this flyer at my mom's church and interviewed, was lucky enough to get it. But as soon as I started farming, it pulled me in. I remember the very first day of work, my job was to harvest cilantro, which was an herb I had never met before. And those pungent aromas just, you know, clung to the creases of my hands. And it really was, you know, smelling that as I went to sleep later on really was a, a remembrance and this call home to something that was greater than myself and even greater than this lifetime. And so I was completely hooked. Leah Penniman worked on several organic farms, and she and her partner Jonah started Youth Grow, an urban farming program in Worcester, Massachusetts, where they had gone to college. After building up their farming and organizing skills for a decade, they were ready to start Soul Fire Farm. They saw Soul Fire as a mission-driven project to address the needs of the Black community. The truth is that the food system is not broken. It was, you know, designed to protect the interests of a few, namely European heritage folks, men, people with property. And so we see the repercussions of that history today. On the consumer side of things, we live in a society under food apartheid, meaning that certain people are relegated to zip codes where you don't have access to good food or transportation and other people are, are living in zip codes where there's food opulence, you know, your Whole Foods and your Trader Joe's. And that's not because of it's anyone's personal fault that they are not interested in good food or are not trying hard enough. It, it's because of a history of redlining and zoning that really determines people's access to food. And as a result, black and brown folks, indigenous folks in particular, suffer from really high rates of diabetes, obesity, and heart disease and other diet-related illnesses, not to mention hunger itself. And that's just the consumer side. That's the part that most often gets talked about in terms of how can we live in such a wealthy country and have one in six children going to bed hungry at night, one in three black children going to bed hungry at night. It's really unconscionable. I think also, though, what's less talked about is how the land ownership and the labor have racial bias. And so right now in our country, over 80% of the food is grown by Latinx people, Spanish-speaking people, many of whom are guest workers through the H-2A visa. And these folks are not protected by the same set of labor laws that other sectors are protected by. And so you don't have the right to overtime pay as a farm worker. You have a different minimum wage, different child labor laws, no right to unionize. And so there's a lot of wage theft and poverty and unsafe working conditions that farm workers experience while they're doing what's really noble and essential work of growing food for folks in this nation. And then land ownership is really skewed too, um, depending which census you look at, you know, between 95 and 98% of the rural land in this country is owned by white people, which is higher than it was in 1910. Uh, so there's been 
more inequality over time in terms of racial distribution of land. And again, no accident of history. You know, the original sin of this country was the theft of, of almost all of this land from indigenous people and the corresponding genocide. Um, and that really hasn't shifted. And so we're looking at those three sectors, you know, land, labor, and the food itself, and how to shift the food system so that it really is one of equity and where good jobs and access to land and food are considered basic human rights that everyone should have access to and not privileges reserved for the few. People talk about food deserts, and I noticed that you and and other activists that I've read and talked to have been really naming this as food apartheid. And I just wonder if you could break that down a tiny bit more for our listeners. So a food desert, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, is a zip code that's high poverty and where grocery stores are far away. And the challenge with that word really is that a desert is a natural biome that's actually biodiversity rich and has a place, a rightful place on this earth, which is not the case with with the system we have today. Apartheid is this human created intentional system of segregation. Right. And so when we use desert, it sort of implies that this arose naturally out of nowhere and it's just the way things are. Right. And apartheid names that there's systemic racism involved. And so it's really important to us to choose language that names where the problem actually lies. Before I was working with radio, I I worked in an emergency food pantry. The organization that I worked with is doing a lot of innovative things, uh, community gardening, gardening education, nutrition education, and advocacy work, and really working to challenge the dominant narratives around hunger and food insecurity and really looking at root causes and the intersections of different issues like healthcare and affordable housing and fair wages. But there were things that stood out to me in the work that you're doing that really are so different. The first one is the leadership of people of color. It's people from the community creating the change that they want to see in the community and not just well-meaning white liberals from outside the community coming in to save the day. So that was that was one of the first things that really stood out to me. And the other thing, and, and these are connected, is that you're not giving food away. There's a sliding scale, but it's purchased. It's not given away, and farmers are paid for the work of growing food. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why that was important. As far as leadership by people of color, you know, it almost is obvious when you think about it in terms of who knows the most about racism. It's the people who are impacted by racism. You know, who knows the most about anti-Semitism? It's the Jewish community. Who knows the most about transphobia? It's folks who are not, don't identify in the gender binary. And so it would make sense, right, to listen to the voices and center the voices and center the leadership of people impacted by an issue in trying to resolve the issue. So if it's hunger, it's folks who've experienced or are experiencing hunger. And so that that's just seems painfully obvious to us, even though it's not very common. And I think something, too, we have to think about is, you know, in the nonprofit world, the people who often benefit most from the grants and funding who are coming in are the folks who have the jobs at the nonprofits. It's those secure salary jobs, sometimes with benefits, even if they're not high paying. And if we have all these people who aren't from the community, who aren't experiencing these oppressions in those jobs, doling out services to the community, it's really perpetuating, honestly, the problem that we're trying to solve. And so making sure that our staffing and boards of our organizations that are doing social service work represent the communities that they serve is providing a double benefit and also a a true redistribution of resources. So that's been super important to us. And it doesn't mean, you know, that it's always 
always easy. There's a lot of ways that we structure our organization differently to make sure that employment and leadership are truly accessible to folks from the community. So things like child care and language interpretation and disability justice are, are integral to our culture at Soul Fire Farm. Your second part of your question was about, you know, people paying for food as opposed to just giving it away. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think there's a dignity in a market exchange. And so even if someone is paying with EBT or paying a very small amount for their food, there's a sense that that food is not a charitable contribution to them, but really something that they own and earn, which I think does benefit the member. It also benefits us not because the $5 a week is a lot, but because when people pay something, even a small amount of something, they really want that thing. And they're making a commitment to that thing. So we we don't have folks like throwing away that food or wasting that food or not showing up to pick up their box because there's like a two, there's a two-way investment and there's a two-way relationship. Sometimes when things are free, there is not as much commitment to the value of those things on either side. And so we as farmers really cherish what we're providing and then our members really cherish what they're receiving. Soulfire Farm operates a CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. They've got about 100 members, and it's part of a concept of cooperative economics, which focuses on building relationships that are beyond a casual producer-consumer relationship. Households sign up at the beginning of the year and commit to a monthly payment, based on what they can afford, for weekly deliveries of fresh food to their doorstep. The farm commits to taking the weekly harvest and dividing it by 100 for each member's share of the harvest. Some members pay extra for what they call a solidarity share, to provide free or very low-cost boxes for their neighbors who are refugees, recent immigrants, or maybe impacted by mass incarceration. And the farmer still gets paid for those shares. I wondered about the logistics of the doorstep delivery for every CSA household. It seemed challenging to pull off. Doorstep delivery is surprisingly not as logistically complicated as one would think. You know, once you've got the route figured out and it can, it can be done in five hours or so, which is really about the amount of time that you would spend standing around in a farmer's market and maybe not selling uh, all of your produce, especially if it's a rainy day. So it works for us. We've really figured it out. And it is such a huge benefit to our members because a lot of folks don't have transportation or they're single parents and they have children that they can't necessarily drag around, even if they do have transportation. So the doorstep delivery has made the farm share CSA model work for people who otherwise would not be able to access this fresh food. And so it's been, you know, we considered early on ditching it and doing something else. And there was such an outcry, like, no, we're going we're gonna to make the doorstep delivery work because this is very important to our community. During our phone interview, I read one of the passages in Farming While Black that had really jumped out at me. Certainly, if we wanted to sell all of our food to suburbanites connected to the so-called good food movement, we would be sold out with a waiting list. Our vision is different. Seeing food as a basic human right and not a privilege compels us to do the hard work of getting our harvest to those marginalized by food apartheid. It, it would have been a different thing if you were just to say, I really want to farm. Uh, some other people I know want to farm. We're going to put this farm together and we're going to make a living. We're going to sell produce. And your vision is, it encompasses so much more than that. Yeah, thank you so much for reading that out loud. And, you know, it's work of the heart. And so we're, we're very happy to do it. But, you know, for example, folks in our community who we most want to reach have never, often have never heard of a CSA. And 
might be mistrustful of this idea of what is this commitment we're making and like signing over our EBT card and so on and so forth. So a lot of the work in the winter is about relationship building and and sharing with folks. We do a lot of free workshops at churches and libraries and schools about nutrition and food justice. And so in building those relationships, people find their way to becoming members of the CSA. I'm speaking with Leah Penniman, farmer and author of the book Farming While Black. We'll return to our conversation in a moment. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at BloomingFoods.coop. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Let's return to our conversation with Leah Penniman about her new book, Farming While Black. So in the book, you do dive into some of your own spiritual practices and and the roots of those practices. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origins of that for you and, and how it relates to your farming and why you thought it was important to include that in a book like this. Yeah. Oh, so much to say on that. But I think (laughs) something I'll share is that these elders, these women in in Ghana, who I know well, asked me if it was really true that farmers in the United States would would plant seeds and not pray over them or not give libation or not dance. And that we, we expected for food to be produced that nourish body and soul. Like they were just in complete disbelief that that was the almost universal practice. Um, So for Black people um, who are not colonized, the integration of spirituality with farming is natural and inseparable. There isn't a difference. And so it, it actually would be disingenuous not to include spiritual practice in a book about Black farming. We pray over our seed. We have harvest festivals. We use herbs for spiritual baths. And it did it did feel um, a little bit scary, a little bit daunting to include that because our African traditional religion, indigenous religion in general, has been so demonized. It's, it's considered devil worship by a lot of folks. And, and a lot of black folks in our community have adopted those doctrines of Judeo-Christianity and, and also scorn uh, traditional religion or, or group it together as with all other indigenous religions as, as animistic and don't see the complexity and depth and beauty of things like you know, the Odui Fa, the oral history of the Yoruba people, which is a United Nations intangible cultural heritage wonder of the world, you know. So there was the sense that there will be pushback about that, but it mm-hmm. felt it's so important to what we do and so important to who I am that it was a, a necessary risk. Farming While Black is a how-to guide for farming, for purchasing land, navigating lending and funding, for building raised beds, remediating contaminated soil, growing particular crops, 
But it's also a how-to on building a community, on building a community structure that can be sustained over time. The book includes sample meeting agendas for specific kinds of meetings and suggestions about what decisions should be made at what types of meetings. For instance, a strategic discussion meeting lasts about an hour and considers the why and the how of a particular project. I asked Leah why she thought this kind of guidance was important to include. Sometimes I feel like a grumpy, jaded you know, person who's been on the earth too long, even though I'm in my 30s, because I'm just like, oh, yeah, y'all, you know, think this is fun and games and easy, and you're just going to go around and harvest flowers and herbs all day, but you don't know anything about governance or business. or So there was, there was a little bit of that in there, a little bit of that curmudgeoniness, but <laughs> I think it's really true to be able to have production skills is just one small part of what it takes to to work towards uh, healthy farming and, and food system. A lot of it is about management of relationships and power and decision-making, about clear agreements. And sometimes in the left, in social justice circles, we steer away from that and believe that somehow if we have positive relationships of trust and respect, that those things will just work themselves out, and they don't. Um, it's actually even more important in, in communities that are rooted in, in friendship and love and mutual respect that we get very, very clear about our agreements and what we can expect from each other and who holds what power. Because um, I've just seen too many examples of, of projects with a ton of potential uh, disintegrate because of interpersonal dynamics that relate from not having clarity around what our standards and expectations are. Uh, so I'm all about that, <laughs> all about the meeting agendas and the contracts, things like that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion Program. Black Latinx Indigenous Farmers Immersion Program is a one-week-long, 50-hour intensive farm skills training program. We have about 20 folks in a cohort who come live, work, and learn on the farm together and we spend about half our time uh, learning by doing in terms of actually, you know, actually farming and learning those systems hands on. Then we also have workshops on everything from soil science to marketing, as well as reflective spaces about the history of black indigenous agrarian movements and how to heal from the trauma of land based oppression. It's really hard to describe in words, you know, abstractly the magic that is BLFI. It has been named by participants as a space where freedom can really be felt. There's this really, really powerful connection and healing and growth that happens. This program came out of a really strong desire from our extended community locally and nationally to have farm training programs in a space that's led by black and brown people. And that was something that they hadn't been able to find in the past. So we created the program to respond to that need and you know, it fills up with like one Facebook post in a few minutes. And so we've, you know, created as many sessions as we can handle and still have a huge waiting list. Um, so the book in part was to address the folks who are, are waiting their turn to like come to full fire so that they can <laughs> have a peek at some of the learning and curriculum in advance. I appreciate you talking to me and sharing your thoughts with me and spending this time. Oh my goodness, it's been such a delight. And I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book and ask such thoughtful and insightful questions. It means a lot to me. Leah Penniman's book, Farming While Black, is available through Chelsea Green Publishing. Find details on our website, eartheats.org.
The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Leah Penniman and Chelsea Green Publishing. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com.